Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's a delight to worship you. It's a delight to be called your children. It's a delight to follow your son Jesus. It is a delight to practice obedience. It's a delight to gather with your people and open your word and study what it says and be transformed by your spirit. And we thank you that as we gaze upon your beauty, we are inspired to seek you more and to be more like you. And I pray that that's exactly what would happen here this morning. That as we talk about uh, loving one another, that first and foremost, we would be able to understand how much we have been loved. And then uh, what a great gift and responsibility is placed upon us to love one another. Lord, I pray that you would minister to our church body this morning. Um, As Eric mentioned, we know that there are people who are going through hardships and difficulties, struggles, and I pray that you would draw near to them, that you would truly minister to them, meet their needs. Um, I pray that you would hear their prayers, that you would um, just keep them close to you in the comfort of your love. And Lord, we ask that everything that happens here this morning would be to the praise of your glorious name and that you would edify the saints in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hopefully you're in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, and if you need a Bible, you're welcome to take one of ours from uh, the table in the back there. But the way that I remember it kind of going down is it was probably towards uh, the end of my time in college that I noticed a new phrase kind of enter into the cultural dialogue. And then I think it was a couple years later, around 2007, they made a movie about it. And maybe the term was present in conversations before that point, but I don't really remember it in dialogue uh, before then. And then once the movie came out, like people were using this phrase all of the time. And a Google search told me the movie came out in 2007, but I couldn't find any articles uh, on the Google search before like 2011. So this is, you know, a relatively new term in the English language. And now if you search for the term, Google will give you more than 15 billion search results, okay? And what I'm talking about is the bucket list. You know what a bucket list is? I'm guessing you know what a bucket list is. It's that list that you might have of those fun, adventurous things that uh, you need to make sure that you get done before you kick the bucket, right? Before you die. And the bucket list is all about priorities. You know, as people get closer to the end of their life, they rethink the things that are their priorities and they realize, oh, we better get some of these things done before it's too late. And you're going to die one day and there's probably a lot of things that you want to do before that day sneaks up on you. And so you need to get your priorities in order in order to accomplish the bucket list. Now, I would say the way our culture thinks about a bucket list is ridiculous, right? I think it's shallow and petty. I think it's uh, kind of selfish and oriented mostly around pleasure, But the idea itself is meaningful, if you think about it. The end of your life 
It's going to come sooner than you realize, probably sooner than you want it to come. And so you better get your priorities in order in preparation for that day. You know, another way of thinking about it is sometimes you'll hear somebody say something like, well, if you knew that you only had 48 hours left to live, how would you spend those 48 hours, right? You probably wouldn't do the kinds of things that you're planning to do over the next 48 hours, right? You wouldn't be like, I got to make sure I'm at work on Monday morning. Well, today we're going to see what priorities the Bible would have us think about as we look at this passage. So 1 Peter chapter 4, just verses 7 and 8. The apostle Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So Peter says the end of all things is at hand, and this is why we ought to have our priorities in a proper order. These are the last days. We are living in the last days. And so Peter is going to tell us how we ought to live in light of that truth. Spoiler alert. He's not going to say you should travel more. He's not going to say you should take that dream vacation that you've always dreamed about. You should live it up. Make sure you knock off the bucket list. He's actually going to essentially say that we should live the last days in this life in anticipation of the consequences in the next life. We'll get into that more in a minute. First, I know some of you might already be thinking, hey, wait a second, Grady. Peter, wasn't he writing this like 2,000 years ago? And he's saying that the end of all things is at hand. I'm confused a little bit because 2,000 years is kind of a long time and the end still hasn't come. Peter definitely wasn't close to the end of all things then, was he? Well, I would say the answer to that question is really a matter of perspective. I guess you could say that from a historical perspective, 2,000 years passing does seem to suggest that Peter was not at the end of all things. But from the perspective of the biblical story, from the perspective of what the Bible teaches from, generation, or from Genesis to Revelation, we are living in the last days. If you follow the unfolding biblical story from Adam and Eve in Genesis through to Abraham and then to Moses and David and ultimately to Jesus and the apostles, we find ourselves in this story at the end of the story. The next chapter is the final chapter where Jesus returns and he establishes a new heavens and a new earth. That's the last chapter of this book, which means that today, right now, you are living in the second to last chapter. The end of all things is at hand. It's coming soon. It could be any day now. But Peter's not wrong about the end of all things being at hand from another perspective as well, which is this. You 
don't know when your last day is, do you? Like, if you're like me and you use a digital calendar, there's lots of things scheduled for the next couple of months, but none of them is, that's the last day. You don't know. Every person who has read Peter's letter since he authored it has been standing somewhere close to the last day of their own life and they've not been aware exactly when that day will come. You might plan for tomorrow, but you don't know for certain that you will wake up tomorrow. And so for all you know, this could be the last day. And so do you live your life as if the end of all things is at hand? Is that truly how you prioritize what is important to you? Do you even know what you should be prioritizing? Have you thought through the kinds of things that when you stand before God will be the kinds of things you want to display to him as your priorities? What are the most important things that you can do with your life each day? Well, Peter gives us two instructions here. The first one, I would say, is about our personal conduct. The second one is about our interpersonal conduct. And first, Peter says that in light of the fact that the end is near, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And then the second thing he says is keep loving one another earnestly. Let's deal with the first set of instructions. Be self-controlled and be sober-minded. I spent a fair amount of time over the last week just kind of picking at these words and uh, looking at what the Greek dictionary has to say and pulling up every usage of them in the New Testament to make sure that I really understood what they were talking about. And I've really reached the conclusion here that Peter sees both of these words as one unit, okay? The technical term for this is what's called a hendiatus, which maybe you don't care about at all, but that idea is two words connected by the word and that form one concept. So you could think of it like this. When I tell my children, grab the fork and the knife out of the drawer for everyone when you set the table, I could also say grab the silverware. The fork and the knife become one unit that could be expressed another way. So the first word that Peter uses here is the word self-controlled. And if you look that word up, you can find it in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Peter uses that same Greek word. And at least the ESV says there, not self-controlled, but have sober judgment. Very similar to the second word that Peter uses. And the second word that we translate here, sober-minded, if you look that up in a Greek dictionary, you find there that also the word can mean self-control. Okay, so here's the point. With these two words, Peter is telling us that because the end is near, we need to be people who live with wisdom, who think rightly about things, who use sound judgment. There's no time for foolishness in our lives. We are going to be accountable for the moments that we have and how we spend them. And so we need to have mastery over our passions, which if you look back to verse 2, is something that Peter already told us in this chapter. We need to think clearly and think rightly about things. 
We need to live lives that are honorable and pleasing in the sight of God. These are the kinds of things that should be our priorities so that we're prepared to meet with Jesus in the very near future, either when we die or when he comes. This is what it looks like for us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. It means to be prepared and to live today in light of the fact that the judgment is coming soon. You know, a lot of days I study and um, I study the word to prepare for different teachings that I'm responsible for. And uh, on those days, um, I don't tend to schedule meetings. I tend to schedule meetings on different days. And so if I just have a study day, you know, I work from home. So I don't shower. I might put on clothes that don't look very pastoral or professional because it doesn't really matter, right? I'm holed up in my office at home. It's just me and my dusty books. But on the days when I have meetings, um, I typically don't, you know, wear my pajamas. I prepare myself. I take a shower. I maybe put some deodorant. I, I do put some deodorant on. I put on a clean shirt, right? Because I am getting ready for the appointments that are on my calendar that are coming up. And it's a bit like that. Peter is telling us to live in readiness and not be spiritual slobs. We are to keep our daily conduct together as if any moment we might stand before the judge to make an account of our lives on the last day. To be self-controlled in our daily conduct means that we need to shun sin and fight the flesh and despise depravity and love righteousness and seek holiness and exercise obedience to the word of God. Living lives that are faithful to Jesus who has bought us with his precious blood. More than anything else, more than anything else in your life, these things should be what you prioritize. Today matters because it could be the last day that you have before you stand and give an account of your life. And Peter connects these two words to a specific purpose, right? He says, look, the end of all things is at hand, so be self-controlled and be sober-minded. And then he reminds us that we are going to stand before the judge, the end of all things is at hand, but he also reminds us, because you're already in the presence of the judge, aren't you? For the sake of your prayers. If you are a praying person, then you are entering into the presence of God every single time that you pray. I mean, the fact of the matter is, because of the Spirit of God in you as a Christian, you are always in the presence of God. But in prayer, you become conscious of the fact that you are meeting with the Lord and the righteous eyes of God are upon you, not just on the day of judgment, they're upon you now. They're upon you each and every moment. They are particularly upon you and you are aware of it when you stand before the Lord in prayer. And how can we come before God with boldness and with confidence if we are living our lives in ways that don't honor him moment to moment. See, for the sake of your prayers, you should live a self-controlled and sober-minded life. 
We need to be self-controlled in our actions and sober-minded in our thinking so that we, when we come before the face of God in prayer and we present our needs to him and let him know what we are needful of and we give him thanks and praise and we go to soak up more of his grace in prayerful intimacy with him and we give him uh, our attention for the sake of our prayers We need to live lives of conduct so that we have nothing to be ashamed of when we come before our great God and King. And this is not an effort at self-righteousness to prove ourselves to him, to make him accept us or so that we can earn God's favor. We're already accepted by God because of the cross, because of what Christ has done. But our good conduct is an act of love where we come before the Lord and we say, you have loved me And I have tried to live in a way that expresses my love for you. You have rescued me and redeemed me. And my life is a sacrificial offering of praise to you. And when we live lives that are self-controlled and sober-minded and then we pray, aren't we reminded of God's power to give us victory over sin? We're reminded that God's never-failing love is what has bought us out of slavery to sin and has eradicated our shame. We're taught to think rightly about God's presence with us, the grace that he has given us, his goodness towards us, his affection for us. And we're taught to think rightly that God, or that sin is disgusting. It's not something we want to participate in. Holiness is a great reward. Righteousness is delightful. God's beauty and his truth are to be highly desired. And so Peter tells us, because the end of all things is at hand, let your thoughts and your actions honor God. So that when you come before God in prayer, you have nothing to be ashamed of. And on the day when you finally meet with him face to face, you're prepared. Then as we move into verse 8, Peter instructs us to go even higher, even farther. As if it wasn't enough already to say, simply be self-controlled and sober-minded. Peter is going to move in this second verse here, verse 8, from our own personal actions before God in the privacy of prayer, being self-controlled and sober-minded, then outward to the way that we live in community with one another before God. And he says in verse 8, above all. All, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now that phrase, above all, appears to suggest that Peter believes that what is coming next is of greater importance even than what he said before. To be self-controlled and sober-minded is of the utmost importance, to be sure. But the command to practice love with one another is an even greater thing still. Why is that? Well, I would say there are a few reasons. First, because as Eric was reminding us in the prayer moment, the Christian life is not a lone venture. The Christian life is not some kind of isolated self-expression. Life in Christ is a community endeavor. And it is that way because it reflects the very nature of our God, who in his Trinitarian being 
is one God in three persons, is a community of love. And God has brought us into community with himself and his people. And that community is a community of interconnected love. You know, these people who call themselves Christians but think that they can do the life of the Christian without participating in the body of Christ, they have no way to even obey verse 8. They have no way to practice communal love if they are isolated and alone. You know, I'm just going to come out and say it. You know that I often say difficult things like this. But I would say that you cannot be a Christian if you do not participate in the body of Christ. It's simply not possible. And feel free to go do your own study on that if you doubt me, but I think that you'll find the teaching of Scripture is very clear on that point. Above all, keep loving one another. The second reason why the command to keep loving one another earnestly is a higher command is because what Jesus himself taught his followers. He said that love is the greatest commandment. So when Jesus was asked which commandment is the most important, he said in Matthew chapter 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Loving God and loving others are two parts of one whole that are produced by the love of God present in the heart of the believer. And the reason why your love for one another is so important as a Christian is because it is the proof that God's love has flowed into your heart and is now abundantly springing forth out of your heart into the community of faith. So Jesus says in John 15, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he says something similar in John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, Christianity is not a religion of ideas. Christianity is a religion of devotion. It is a religion of action. It's a religion of discipline. Our hearts are devoted to God because we've received his love And his love is transformational, making us into the kind of people who are devoted to one another in love, like Jesus has been devoted to us. Finally, love for others is of the utmost importance because it's the exact opposite of the natural way that we tend to live as broken, sinful humans, isn't it? And so it proves, our love proves, that we have stepped out of the darkness of death and into the light of life. What do people naturally practice? What do people just by nature do? What do they never have to be taught? 
People never have to be taught self-love. I don't care what the therapist tells you. You do not need to increase in self-love. You've got that down. You're quite good at it. Self-love is what we are all born into. It is self-centeredness. That's the problem. Your greatest problem you have is that sin has made you a fierce lover of yourself. You love your freedom. You love your own image. You love your intelligence. You love your accomplishments. You love to feel good. You love pleasure. You love yourself quite well. You love your reputation, your power, your comfort. You love you more than anything else. And you will stay that way until the love of Christ comes into your heart to destroy your self-love and to turn your affections from being inward to upward and then finally outward to others. And so loving others is the greatest proof that you've been changed. Because otherwise you would just keep loving you and not others. Love for others is a divine thing. It comes from the heart of Jesus who loved God and then loved us. Loved us enough to lay down his life to share his love with us. And so the proof that we have received that love is found in the way that we love others. And if you don't love others, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you don't love especially your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you cannot say that you love God because these things are two part of one whole. They are inseparable. That's what our scripture reading was teaching. So what does love really look like in practice? What does it look like to love another person earnestly? Thinking through that question, I was reminded of a story that I once heard about a three-year-old girl. She was very sick and she was dying. And she needed a blood transfusion while the doctors continued to treat her. And it was discovered that her five-year-old brother was uh, the best match for her to receive blood from. And so the parents asked the little boy, you know, would you be willing to give blood for your sister so that she can live? And the father asked the son the question and the boy thought for just a moment and then he bravely said, yes, I will give my blood for my sister. So the nurse came in and they got everything ready and she put the needle in and began to draw blood and the boy's sitting there next to his father and he's watching the blood run out of his veins and the father can see that he's, you know, a little distressed. And so the father says to the son, man, son, you're so, you're so brave. I love you. Don't, you don't need to be scared. It's going to be over soon. And the boy replies, he says, I know, daddy, I know. And I'm so glad that my sister is going to live. But daddy, how much longer until I die? See, in being asked to give his blood for his sister, he was under the impression that it would mean that his life would be required in exchange. And yet he still did it willingly. And so if we ask the question, what is love? The answer is self-sacrifice. 
I will give of myself for you. I will give my life for you. I will give what is mine for you. And although this boy's actions were heroic and inspiring, the question for you is not ultimately, will you give your life for someone else? I mean, look, I think all of us think that in the moment of decision, we would give our life for someone else. And I hope that we don't ever have to find out how deep our character really goes with that question. But I would say the question is whether you would do the small things, not necessarily the heroic things, Right? The boy gets the story told about him because he's a hero. But would you do the kinds of things that don't end up being worthy of a story to give of yourself for someone else? The non-heroic things? Would you be willing to give to your spouse an encouraging hug on that day when they've been a total jerk to you? Would you be willing to speak words of life to them even when they've been harsh to you? Would you be willing to give them even more of your heart when you feel like the best thing that you should do is guard it and keep it from them because they might wound it more? That's a kind of selfless, sacrificial love. Would you take your vacation savings that you've been storing up for months or years and give it to the family in our church in need who just lost their job and can't now pay their mortgage? That would be an act of selfless love. Would you use a precious day off, one of your vacation days that are far too few, in order to come to the aid of someone else in our church and help them move, which is like the worst thing that you can do with your time? I'm kidding. How about this? Would you just seriously commit to actually praying for somebody in our church who you know has a need that should be prayed for? Would you pray for them every day seriously and not just be like, oh yeah, I'll pray for you in that? Would you actually commit to go before the Lord and pray for them. That would be a selfless act of love. Would you clean up after your children without complaining about it or being angry about the messes that they leave? Would you forgive the offense of someone in this room who said something stupid that they shouldn't have said and never even asked for your forgiveness? Would you still be willing to extend to them the act of love in forgiveness? What about just going out of your way to write a note of encouragement and drop it in the mail for someone in our church that you know is discouraging? You know, our church app has most people's addresses available to you. Would you do something like that? Would you give up some of your me time to invest in a younger believer or maybe in a younger family in our church You know, you've heard me say it a million times, but I think it's still an effective way to say this. I would gladly die for my wife, but I probably won't do the dishes for her. Do you see how silly it is? Or I love my children, of course I would die for them, but am I willing to turn off the podcast so that I can give them some of my undivided attention? 
You know, I could go on. Hopefully you get the idea. Earnest love for one another is often displayed most powerfully in the small, unnoticed, unpraised sacrifices that we make for one another. Jesus went to the cross, which was heroic, and hopefully that inspires us to give a heroic kind of love. But do you know what? For three years before he went to the cross, he was engaging in ministry, loving people in all kinds of simple, small ways, day after day after day. And those things are not even recorded for us in the Bible. Probably because they're so insignificant, they're not even worth a story. But Jesus lived a life of sacrifice, not just on the cross, but every moment with every person that he encountered. In Christianity, love is not a sentiment. It's not a feeling or an emotion. It's an action. It's a discipline. It's a sacrifice that often hurts. That will sometimes even feel like a kind of death as you deny yourself for the sake of another. So Peter calls us to this love and he tells us that loving one another earnestly covers a multitude of sins. Have you heard this verse before? I think uh, when we read this, we're prone to think, oh, love covers a multitude of sins. So when I love somebody, I will cover their sins. Uh, I think that's true. And obviously that's the gospel, right? God's love for you has covered your sins. Praise God for that. Love, the love of Jesus in particular, covers a multitude of sins. You know, love is a fierce bandage, that brings powerful healing to sin. But I think it's possible actually that what Peter has in mind here is that when we love others, the love that we display for them becomes a covering for our own sin. Isn't that interesting? Now, I'm not suggesting that your love for others becomes some kind of salvific thing, that it like brings you salvation. I'm only saying that when we love others, what we are doing is we are putting on the clothing of Christ's righteousness that covers us in the love of God. And as a Christian, you've received the love of Christ in spite of your sin. His love covers you. And that means that now, covered in the love of Christ, you are free to let your love flow outward to others. This is the transformational nature of God's love in us. It's not just something we receive. It's something we receive in order to give. And so from the covering of Christ's love, love then flows from us, which covers our sin. It proves that we are covered in the love of Christ, in his righteousness, no longer in selfishness any longer. And so I would say that our love for others proves that we have been loved. That we are covered in the love of Christ. And so Peter's not saying that love simply overlooks sin or excuses it. Rather, what Peter is getting at here is that sacrificial love transforms us into godliness. Your love for others is actually a covering for the multitude of your sins, which you no longer have to walk in, because instead you can walk in love. Now we should also understand, and I'll close with this, that love does cover a multitude of our own sins as well, and praise God for that. On the day of judgment, 
on the last day, the day that is near, God will not actually see your sins. He will see the righteousness of Christ if your faith is in him. The love of Christ will cover you. And I'm just reminded here of the story of the prodigal son, right? If you read that story, or maybe you know the story, it's about a rebellious son. He goes to his father. He basically says, I wish you were dead. I want the money that would be mine when you do die. And the father's like, okay. He gives it to his son, and the son, like a fool, goes off to a far country and squanders it on parties and prostitutes. And he ends up destitute and poor, and he is feeding pigs and looking at their food and thinking, that looks pretty tasty right now. That's how hungry he is. And he realizes, what a fool I've been. Why don't I go back to my father and just ask for forgiveness? Not that he needs to take me back as his son, but even being a slave in his house would be better than longing for the food of pigs. And so he does. He goes back to his father and he says, Father, I've I've treated you very poorly. I'm not worthy to be called your son, but I'm sorry. And you know what the father does if you read that parable? The father clothes the son in his own robes. And he puts on the son his own family signet ring. What a wonderful act of forgiveness. That literally covers the son in the love of the father. Covers over all of his sin. The actions of the father say, I love you regardless of how you have treated me. Like Jesus on the cross who cries out, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. And so it's the love of Christ that clothes us in forgiveness and covers our sins. And then as Christians, above all else, the greatest thing that we can do to honor Christ for the love that he has given us is to pass that love on to others, whether they are worthy of it or not. Yes, self-control and sober-mindedness are of the utmost importance. But the greatest of all Christian habits is to love one another earnestly, relentlessly, selflessly, graciously. Just like Christ has loved you. Let's pray. Oh God, what can we even say to give you thanks for the love that you have given us. You knew full well the price that would be required when you came in the flesh to redeem us. And we thank you. We thank you that you were willing to love us in this way. We thank you that your love has covered the multitude of our sins. And Lord, would you pierce our hearts today Because we may be tempted as we hear a sermon like this to think about other people and say, yeah, those people should really love others more. But Lord, it is we who need this message that we should love others more. Not in our own strength, not by our own power, not with our own resources, but from the love that you have given to us. Lord, would you teach us to be self-controlled and sober-minded and above all, Would you teach us to love one another earnestly? In Christ's name, amen.